G'day everyone, welcome back to Talking Leadership. Thank you for joining me again. So this is the first of a new series of video podcasts and today's guest is someone who helped me out for my very first episode almost two and a half years ago. Can I welcome to this new video podcast, Jonathan Davey. How are you, mate? I'm good, Eric. How are you? (laughs) I'm good, my friend. So uh, for those listening, before we get into the questions for today's podcast, Jonathan is the CEO of Melons Australia, and he was formerly in a similar role with the seafood industry, of which I am still working. Uh, It's a loss for my industry that Jono moved on to uh, the land-based ag sector, but we'll we'll forgive him for that. He's gone to do some uh, big things with Melons Australia. So, mate, um, we talked about in the last episode, which was the first of the audio podcast that I did about your view of leadership and this is a an extension of that conversation so the questions are a little bit a little bit different and a little bit more pointed around um uh leadership practice and so come at this with whatever lens you want and you don't necessarily have to look at your current role because you've only been in the role for six months is that right Oh, uh, almost eight months. Okay, there we go. Come on, mate, give me a couple of months. Close (laughs) enough, half a year. All right, Um, let's get things started. Dealing with poor leadership. So in your travels, and and for those listening, um, Jono, you've been working not just in the uh, advocacy representation sectors, but also for government. And again, I won't ask you to name names because that's not what we do here. When you look at poor leadership, how have you dealt with it and what lessons have you taken from others and how you seen them deal with it? Yeah, thanks, Eric. That's a really good, it's a really good question. And please stop me if I if I start waffling on. But I poor leadership is something that I see that's it's only allowed to fester where you don't actually have a correct strategy. And so I personally. I'm someone who likes to take some time at the start, step back and look at where do you want to get to and why you want to get there. And then making sure that you actually develop the right strategy that provides enough guidance to get you to the end position. And if you if if you do that from the start, then not just the leader, but also the people who are working within a certain organisation or working together are actually feeling included. They understand what they're meant to be doing, why they're meant to be doing it and where they're doing it. And so, you know, poor leadership is something, hey, we've we've all dealt with it at some point in time. There is things you can do and things you can't do. You know, some people... Some people thrive in an, in an environment where you may well be working to someone who is a, a poor leader, but may also not have the right strategy in front of them, and therefore they are deemed a poor leader. Um, you can manage up as much as you want. You might get success. You might you might fail. Uh, you might then decide it's time to move on. But in in a, in the grand scheme of things, if if organisations, and speaking from a from a not-for-profit side of things, if organisations have the right strategic framework in place and they know where they want to go, being a bad leader is actually really difficult. And so I think, 
I think that's the key is making sure that the right strategy is there, the right, um, you know, having, having a vision in place, having buy-in from people to actually delivering a vision and leadership then becomes something where you are, you are more managing it as opposed to uh, being exposed to potential bad leadership. Yeah, okay. Um, structure, something I haven't really um, put a lot of thought into and that's why you're better at this than I am uh, by a long <laughs> a long mile. For those that are, that are watching and listening to this in either podcast form, uh, Jono was one of many leaders in the seafood industry that helped set up Seafood Industry Australia and it came through that you've got that, that take that things were... Um, sequence that there was a structure to it and I do recall when things were going off the rails a little bit and I don't mean catastrophically because we ended up with a revamped and revitalized uh, national seafood industry body that you would take us to task on what was the goal and what was the structure so I remember that in my dealings with yourself but um, outside of when you can control that structure and things go when the proverbial hits the fan do you typically have a fallback on how you might fix that? Is there a system that you use to try and get things on track or is it really a uh, situation by situation thing with you? No, look, I, I think if, if you've got, an, you know, again, as you said, I'm a, I'm a stickler for a strategy. Um, if you've got the right framework in place, then it gives you the ability to call out what's going on it gives you something to revert to if there's a miscommunication if there's you know a a a query or an issue um and you know in a not-for-profit organization right we we tend to do some ad hoc work here and there we all do it is it technically aligned with the strategy well it should be and if it's not then should we be doing it or should we not? And chances are we probably shouldn't. But again, it's ad hoc stuff. It may well present a little bit of income or something along those lines. So chances are we're going to do it. But in terms of that, you know, managing expectations and working through if there is a, a crisis or, or something that flares up, you know, if you're questioning whether you're whether the person you see is in a leadership role and doing something that they may or may not, they, they possibly should not be doing, question. Question, what's the strategy? Where are we trying to get to? Why are we doing this work? And all of a sudden that, that potential poor leadership gets called out in a non-confrontational way because if you haven't got the right strategy behind you, then you know, chances are that person will feel quite uncomfortable and they'll turn around and go, hang on a minute, let's, let's think about it. Let's work through the strategy. Let's set the direction of where we want to get to, why we want to get there, and let's build that strategy together. So I think there's, there's ways of recognising, you know, as, as we say, potential poor leadership and addressing it in a fairly non-confrontational way. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Uh, and you did mention, and this is a nice 
segue into the second of the topic areas we've got. We talked about managing expectations. Now, uh, you like myself and others that may be listening or, or watching this video will have worked to boards or to committees. And so you have at times an enviable task of managing down and managing up in terms of the people that you report to because ultimately um, in the not-for-profit space, you're typically working for boards. Now, uh, I think there's an art form to managing up and I think I get it right most of the time, but there's a few times where there's just, I, I will claim that I naturally stuff some things up and I, I think most people would, that are being fed income will say that. How do you deal with it? How do you, what do you, do you go with a predetermined outcome for your interactions with, the higher ups and then for those that are reports to you or do you play it by ear? I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this because what you said before was you've got your plan and you work to it, but you're pragmatic enough to know that if things come up or there's an opportunity to get some gold somewhere else, even that's strictly not speaking where you're going hmm. as your grand strategy, you'll be able to do that. So do you apply that logic to how you manage expectations? Yeah. Look, so you're absolutely spot on with, with, with requiring different strategies, managing up and managing down. Um, uh, I've, I've been doing this for a while, mate. I, I, I know I'm right. I'm just just confirming I, it with you. Just confirming too. it with you. Yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> look, but I guess making sure that people understand what their roles are up front. And again, you know, I don't want to harp on the, that word strategy, but pre, pre-planning is really important in terms of managing expectations, both up and down. Um, if, if people don't have the right support or resources to do that role, then you, then you also need to manage expectations on how deliverable something is and to what extent. And so I think it's really crucial in that, in that early planning stage to turn around and you know, we, we've already strategized. We know where we want to get to. What do we actually need to get there? And if we do that from the start, then the leadership role again becomes even easier. Because if you if you haven't if you have a, a measured what you need, why you need it, and how that's going to actually deliver results in the long run, then management and leadership should be very straightforward. If it's not. And if people are being asked to stretch themselves and go above and beyond, when that's not put up front, you're going to lose people pretty quickly. And again, that's driving yourself towards a level of poor leadership, poor management, not good governance. And really, you're not going to deliver on what you are, what, on what the overall expectation is. Yeah, I, you have to agree with that. Um, moving on, just tangent a little bit but I think it's still related to what we're discussing is the idea of leader development now you talked about um, and the responses you gave me uh, uh, fit into this this um, this discussion around if you're going to get good leadership then you have to have good systems and that speaks to how you on the come up got your leader development now I'm aware that you've done similar courses to me when we were in when, sorry, when you were in the seafood industry and that gives you a, a grounding in that industry and that was the National Seafood Industry Leadership Program for, for those that are listening. I'll put that in the podcast description so you can go and check 
what Jill Briggs and, and the team are doing there. But with you, Jono, um, give us some sense of what your leadership development was when you were in government and then when you came to the private sector and um, was it uh, was there a degree of it being ad hoc and you developed, got that leadership development when you thought you needed it or was it uh, thrust upon you so someone said you're going to do the course because we want you to do it or was it some combination? Because I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that most, uh, even the most effective leaders don't plan out this stuff as much as some of the research might say that they should or they do because we live a life, we have non-work stuff. So how, what, what did it look like for you? Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, the, the National uh, Seafood Industry Leadership Program. Um, so I actually, I was enrolled to do that back in 2014, uh, which was when I decided to leave the federal government. Um, so I was actually going to do it at, at, based in my position in international fisheries in the federal government. Um, they there were quite a few people who were telling me that I should do it, even in taking on the on the leadership role at Seafood Industry Victoria. But I really needed to take that year to immerse myself in my new job, uh, working for industry, not working for government, and really understanding what the what the requirements were in that space. Um, you mentioned the whole baptism baptism of fire side of things, and that was pretty much what I got for my twelve months first 12 months in, in seafood and in, the, in the, uh, the CEO role at Seafood Industry Victoria. Yes, I could have done my job more effectively if I had have done the leadership program, but I don't think I would have had the mental capacity to do both at the one time in terms of continuing the program while, while moving across to the new role. So I am glad that I held off 12 months and then did that in 2015. Since then, to be honest, I haven't done any formal leadership training. Um, I've done a few bits and pieces around governance training and bettering myself as, as a leader of a not-for-profit organisation, but no formal leadership training as such. Yeah, there's no... So just to be clear, I should have said this, sorry, this is... Um, um, is a new question, so forgive uh, some stupidity on my part. I didn't mean... Uh, any judgment around hey you've got to do some formal training no, it's and any kind of professional development i think is good stuff and it sounds like you did that in in bits and pieces um and I, i'm probably the same way um self self-directed to an extent because when i first started like you there's nothing like wanting to immerse yourself in an industry because you at least and we've had this discussion before that you worked in the fishery space but from a government side of things i came into this industry cold didn't have a fisheries background at all and my first job in management for the association that i work for was to deliver climate change work to commercial fishermen in queensland that that was a, well. you well you <laughs> said baptism of fire i might call it something else but it was it was a, a challenge because you had to get over the content that and the issues yeah. that dragged up versus what the actual fishermen were going through and then to um, to support what you're saying, I think that first few years for me, learning what the seafood industry was about was extremely difficult because of the multiple fisheries, the different issues, where they intersect, where they don't, 
dealing with our, our dear, dear friends at fisheries management, all of that stuff um, made it complicated. So I'm, I'm not surprised you put it off. Yeah, look, and, and so I guess just listening to you then and hearing hearing about your background, you know, if, if I imagine that a lot of those items that you were, that you were dealing with were on the spot, reactionary, as opposed to having a proactive plan as to what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. And so I think for me, right, if I, if I look at, if I look at my first year in seafood, where all of a sudden I was a couple of months in and there was an election called, fisheries were being closed down and I was told, I was given next to no warning that that was happening. And so thrust upon me was this entire defensive reaction. Um, whereas coming across now into agriculture, I've been able to, over the last six months of being in the role, sit down with my board, with the organisation, with our industry, and actually plan out what do we want to achieve over the next five years? How are we going to do that? How are we going to resource that? Who's going to do it? When are we going to do it? And why are we going to do it? And so you know, I feel as though simply shifting roles has allowed me to further my development and my leadership in terms of uh, that not-for-profit industry association side of things. I've done no further training, but it's just the exposure to something different has allowed me to really hone in on my leadership skills by way of setting a new strategic plan for the next five years. And so we've worked out what are the four key priorities for industry. We've also then sat that alongside a, a crisis management plan that we've developed and undertaken some skills and training um, for the board and for other people within the industry who had interest. And so we've now got a whole suite of plans that sit side by side. They're continual living documents. They're not something nice, shiny that's printed and can sit on a shelf and you know, we come back to it in five years. They're allowing us to actually set our workloads and work through what are we doing from day to day, week to week, month to month, to actually support and grow industry. Um, and I tell you, from a, it's a much more enjoyable place to be as a leader when you have that breathing space and capacity to do it. Without having that and without having the support to immerse yourself in that strategy side of things, you, you continue to, to be gasping for air. And it's not a, not a healthy place to be, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really go to the whole you know, question around leadership development, etc. No, no, it does. It does. It's, it's really that's it that's how I see that my my leadership has grown over the last uh, the last six to eight months. It's it's phenomenal the amount that I've been able to get done just through being able to strategize and work to a plan. Yeah, I think with that response, it, it's spot on in, in the sense that um, as you develop individual leaders and in your case, and you made the case quite strongly that you came from one sector to another, you've got a different set of challenges and content to deal with in the new role, but there were some qualitative differences between the two sectors in which you were working. And that change, obviously, there's nothing like experience and and 
the, the industry around you to be a teacher of sorts. So your PD was really on the job. And I would say, and I, I have no science to back me on this, so this is just a, a, a an observation that that first one to two years in a role like yours, you're going to be learning so much uh, over that time that there's your PD in that time. There's no formal call to go with it. But the fact that you're doing the job as CEO um, says a lot about where you are in, in that industry. So, yeah, no, that was a great response. And again, I wasn't looking for you had to do one course or another. I have come at this a little differently personally. Um, I've tried to keep myself professionally qualified in different areas because I have no other discernible skills and so I need to keep studying because that's where my headspace is at and I'm not looking for other type of in-house training because I, I don't think I'm going to get benefit from it personally now that could change whenever there is a move away from where I am now to somewhere else and someone may spot a, def uh, a deficit in my skill set and may kindly suggest that I do something else while I'm there and I'm happy to have that conversation. I just, for me, um, I've had to keep my own PD going in a way that's suited to me. And I think you've made the point quite clearly that what suits you is what you've been through and you didn't really need anything else, nor would you have the time if you're trying to get a work life balance, how are you going to fiddle everything you've done with formal education? And I think, I think that's a really important one. So I, don't get me wrong. There are programs out there that I would love to do. But having work-life balance, having the ability to actually make sure that you are not overstretching yourself to try and deliver on some element of training and capacity development, um, you know, it, it's a fine line and you need, to be able to, you need to be able to, within yourself, understand why you are doing something and why you're not doing something. Uh, I, I understand why you gave that response. Um, yeah, I, I see it for myself as well. I've, I've had the the good fortune of having a role where I've been able to be with my kids and watch them grow up while I've worked from a home base uh, of uh, sense of of work here, and that's been an advantage to me in all sorts of ways. And looking back over the last seven years or at least a time that we've both been in the same industry um, it would be difficult if I'd had the kids then and decided to not have this arrangement because I think it would I would have missed out on a whole lot of stuff that I've seen now it's not all been easy going obviously if raising kids is difficult but yeah I get I get exactly where you're coming from John I the last question if I could tax you just a little bit more is on future skill sets that leaders need. Now, again, the, the reason I'm interested in this conversation, not just because we're mates and I know you, but this, this is important to me because you've had experience in the public sector. You've had experience in two industry bodies and a whole set of other experiences that you bring to the table. Bringing that together and let's, let's look at ag and seafood and, and even forestry as one big uh, group so I'm, I'm asking you to maybe draw on some stuff and and maybe do a bit of crystal ball gazing here what do you think are the future skill sets that leaders need going forward because um, I have a view I think it's not supported by everyone but it's only my view so because this podcast is about you what's your view mate 
Um, yeah, look, I don't know that there's one specific skill set that suits um, that suits everyone. It's very much a uh, the skill set depends on the job you're going to be delivering. And so, you know, the skill set for someone doing the, the lead role in a not-for-profit like we are versus someone who is probably at the equivalent level in a, in a government department, the skill sets are going to be quite different because, you know, for us, we need such a broader range of skills. We need to be able to manage the governance of the organisation, manage the finances of the organisation, um, manage the communications of an organisation, manage the people in an organisation. Whereas you know, if you compare that with, a, with the head of a government department, where the resources, the number of people, all that sort of stuff is there to support them, they only need to have very high-level oversight of, you know, where are we tracking on budget? How, how are our, you know, are managers managing their performance appraisals and those sort of things? You know, for us, the performance appraisal is, well, we've got half an hour with the board. Let's try and make it happen while we can because something else will pop up in the next hour. Um, and so, you know, the, the skill set for a not-for-profit leader is, is one that I find it, it, it takes time to develop. It's not something that happens overnight. You can't, I don't, I don't even, I don't believe you could walk out of university with any one degree and sit there going, I could do this role. Um, and I think it's one that's ever evolving in terms of training needs, qualifications, et cetera. You know, I, I have no formal qualification in financial management, but through sitting down and learning through working with, with bookkeepers, with auditors, with, with accountants, and having to understand where we're at financially, because in the end, you know, yes, yes, the bottom line rests with the directors are not for profit. If something happens, if something happens and the directors are not very happy, who do you think it's going to fall on? The CEO. Um, so, yeah, as I said, I don't think there's any one suite of training that you could do to prepare yourself for this sort of role. Um, the skill sets are, are something that develop over time. I'd, so for me, the joy that I had walking into this new role was I knew how to manage a not-for-profit organisation. I didn't know about how to grow watermelons or you know, how to pick a ripe rock melon. I had no idea. And so for me, the learning that I'm getting at the moment is trying to get out on the farm as much as possible to learn from the growers as to what I'm actually representing them on. And so, you know, I think, yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of where, where my head's at at the moment. I'm still in a massive learning development curve. And you, you mentioned it before, you know, coming into seafood with no seafood background, I've just walked into melons with no, apart from absolutely loving to eat watermelon, rock melon, et cetera, whenever I can. Um, you know, I had no insight on the agriculture side of things. 
you know, yes, I grew up on a on a farm for a bit, but you know, from in terms of taking uh, livestock farming towards then horticulture, which is where I am now, two completely different beasts. But being able to bring in that good governance, the financial reporting, the strategy writing, those sort of key skills, um, you know, we're doing everything possible we can at the moment and we're working, I actually think we're really, you know, we're working quite well together. Things are going along very nicely. Yeah, it sounds good, mate. Again, um, thank you for your time and it's definitely the uh, Australian seafood industry's loss that you've moved to another sector, but it, it's it's the uh, land-based ag sector's gain. So, Jonathan Davey, thank you for your time, mate. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for following, and we'll catch everyone on the next podcast.